Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? On tonight's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, we bring you the final three chapters in the thrilling conclusion of Jasper DeWitt's epic saga entitled The Patient That Nearly Drove Me Out of Medicine. If you're just joining us today, I encourage you to start with the first three chapters as featured in Season 1, Episode 14 of this program, or Episode 15 if you've missed Chapters 4 through 6. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the finale. As he finished his last words, Dr. A gripped the legs of his chair and stood up slowly and gingerly, as if every bone in his body might snap if he moved too fast. Despite his age, I could tell that he'd once cut an imposing figure. Even with his slight stoop, he looked to be at least six foot two, and probably would have been at least an inch taller if he stood straight. He grabbed one edge of the desk to steady himself and held out the other to Dr. G, who reached down and picked up an ornate-looking dark wood cane with a bronze head in the shape of a falcon. He took it from her and slowly made his way around the desk to me. 
As he did so, I saw that he was clutching a thick, dusty file, which surely must have been copied from the very files I'd seen. He sat down on the desk and gave me another frigid look. Before I go on, you have to understand something, he began. And his tone said very clearly that this, whatever he was about to say, was not negotiable. If I'm right about what is wrong with Joe, then we really are doing a service by keeping him here, not just to the outside world, but to Joe himself. If his parents were less endowed with financial and legal power, we'd have done a lot more by now. However, because we cannot afford the kind of legal battle that my suspicions would bring, if reported, we are doing the only thing we can do in keeping him here. Got it? I nodded, this time with sincere deference. He gave a gruff smile in acknowledgement of the gesture. Then, with a grim flourish, he pulled Joe's file open to the first page. When I first met Joe, he said, stabbing the black and white photo of the predatory-looking child, he seemed like a normal boy with a case of night terrors, as you probably know. But of course I got him wrong, disastrously wrong. When he came back he was violent and incapable of speech. I was flummoxed, I had no idea what I'd done wrong. What was more, I had no idea why his tactics kept changing. You must have noticed, he went from making people feel like dirt to making the two scared to stay in the room. Well, when I resigned my post as chief of medicine, I was still no closer to constructing an explanation than I was at the beginning. But retirement's giving me nothing but time to check his old case notes, and the more I looked, the more it slowly started to make sense. He turned a few pages and poked the file again with his finger. The first brainwave came when I worked out why his delusions kept changing. They shift every time someone calls him a new nasty name. Take when we brought him in. He wouldn't even speak. But then some idiot orderly called him a bad boy. And he suddenly started throwing taunts at people. You might not think that means all that much, but I've been to the therapist who treated everyone who survived him during those first few years. And you know what they all told me? All of them, Rose included said the same thing. He called them names that they used to get called growing up, mostly by bullies or nasty other kids. None of it was too specific, but he seemed to be able to know which playground taunts would work best for every single one of them. You see it now? Someone calls him a bad boy. Well, he throws taunts until he works out what the worst boy on earth would be for each of them and acts like that. More pages were turned, and he jabbed at a final passage. Now look at this. After years of berating people this way, he finally meets a violent patient who won't take his crap. But what does the patient do? He beats him half to death and calls him a fucking monster. Next thing you know, he's acting like the monster that used to chase one of our orderlies in his dreams and probably like the monsters that used to scare the crap out of his other roommates. That's why the first kid's heart stopped. 
why he started trying to rape a sexual assault victim and why he could scare someone enough to get him to bend iron bars. Because if he's going to be a monster, he's going to be the worst monster that each of his victims can imagine. Instead of making them feel terrible as they felt at their worst moments of feeling like shit, now he's going to scare them as much as they've ever been scared in their lives. He lowered his spectacles and regarded me for a moment before continuing. Now, surely a bright resident like you will have realized that this kind of behavior tells us that whatever else might be wrong with him, we can conclude from this that Joe is extremely suggestible. At bare minimum, this implies something very unpleasant about his upbringing, since children his age aren't usually this willing to internalize negative feedback unless they've been conditioned to accept it by their parents. And in fact, we have strong evidence to support the idea that Joe was horribly abused in my first session with him. Rose, if you would. Dr. G pulled open another drawer and pulled out a cassette player and two tapes. I recognized them as being copies of the ones I had. She pushed one in and hit play. Dr. A's voice flowed out of it. I'd listened to the session before. But in the context of what I'd just heard, the words took on a grim significance. And now, seeing as I have no choice but to show you at least part of my old transcription, well, I've dug out the old laptop with it from storage and retrieved the file. So here is roughly what Dr. A played for me, with his voice denoted as A and Joe's as J. A, could you tell me about the thing on your walls? J, it's gross. A. Gross? How so? J. Just gross and scary. A. What I mean is, can you describe it? J. It's big and hairy. It's got fly eyes and two big, super strong spider arms with really long fingers. Its body is a worm. Dr. A paused the tape. I could tell he was... Now in full lecture mode. Now, flies, eyes, along with being naturally alien-looking, don't blink, he said. And the main characteristics he attributes for the creature's arms are that they are big and strong and presumably hairy, hence the reference to spiders. And its body is a worm, in other words, a phallus. So we have something phallic with big, strong, hairy arms and unblinking eyes. What could that be? He pushed play again, and the voices restarted. A. That does sound scary. And how big is it? J. Big. Bigger than Daddy's car. The pause button clicked again. Now, even if the family owned... Multiple cars, we can safely assume that Joe probably rode in them with both parents. So why only call it Daddy's car? And to use that particular reference point for its size, that's quite a specific free association, I'd say, said Dr. A. Now, why would Joe free associate to his father after talking about something phallic 
with hairy arms that held him down and stared at him. Curiouser, curiouser. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. First, let's see how this parents react to the alleged intruder. The tape resumed. A. I see, and have your parents ever seen it? J. No, it goes back in the walls when they come. A. Something that big can fit in your walls? They don't break? J. It melts like ice cream. It looks like it is the wall. The tape paused again. So, his parents don't acknowledge this thing's existence, said Dr. A. Now, why might that be? If you're following my train of thought, I think the father's reasoning for pretending there is no monster would be obvious. But the mother, perhaps she simply refused to acknowledge what Joe's father was doing, even with him standing right there by the bed. Joe couldn't have processed that his mother was in denial, so the only logical conclusion would be that his father must have tricked his mother into thinking he was part of the wall. It would fit. Now, let's get to the real meat. The tape once more began playing. J. I see, and it's what made those marks on your arms? J. Yes. I tried covering my face so I wouldn't have to see it. It pulled my arms away and made me open my eyes with its fingers. A. Why did it do that? J. It likes when I feel bad. That's why it doesn't let me sleep. A. What do you mean? J. It eats bad thoughts. Dr. A hit the stop button and the sound ceased. He stared at the cassette player with a kind of livid fascination. The answer was there all the time, he said. I just hadn't paid enough attention. Joe was telling us that he was being sexually abused. He described the sensation of being held down and raped by his father in the context of a monster that fits all the attributes a grown man raping a small boy would have. He even gave us a clue that his father was actually a sadist by telling us that the monster ate bad thoughts which would be how a sadist getting off on his own cruelty would look to a young child. What's more, Joe's initial passiveness, followed by his extreme suggestibility, when called nasty names, are consistent with the behavior of an extremely abused child before and after a psychotic break. He sighed, and I could tell that at this point he was talking at least as much to himself as to me. Of course, that leaves us with the puzzle of why Joe would mimic his father's own sadism when he brought him back in. Well, that brings us to the last part of the tape. He pushed play one final time. The spools began to move. Hey, Joe, I think I know how to kill this mean thing in your walls. Jay, you do? Hey, yes. Can you remember if I tell you... J. Yes. A. Promise. J. Promise. A. Okay, Joe. 
If this thing lives off you, having bad thoughts, I want you to have nothing but good thoughts when it comes. Jay. How am I supposed to do that? It's scary. A. I think it wants you to think it's scary, Joe. But you know what? It's not. It's just your imagination. Do you know what a, an imagination is? J. No. A. It's the part of you that comes up with ideas. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're scary. And ideas can seem dangerous. But Joe, even if your ideas seem scary, they're still your ideas. And your imagination can't scare you with them unless you let it. J. So I can control it? A. That's right, Joe. J. How do you know? A. Well, Joe, can you keep a secret? J. Sure. Promise? J. Promise. A. Well, Joe, this hospital isn't just a hospital. It's a magic castle, and I'm a wizard. J. Really? A. Yes. And my special power is to stop people being scared, which is why people come here to not be scared anymore. And you know what, Joe? All of those people are only scared because of ideas, because of parts of them that they can't control. J. Wow. A. Yes. Now, I'll bet you're a big boy who doesn't wet his bed anymore, aren't you, Joe? J. Duh. I learned how to go number one and number two ages ago. A. Well, think of that big, scary monster like wetting the bed. It's just a part of you that you allowed to get out of control. J. That's funny. The monster is my pee-pee. A. Not exactly. But they're both things you can control because they're part of you, Joe. Now, does that monster seem so scary anymore? Jay, no. And I'm going to tell it that it doesn't scare me the next time I see it. Dr. A stopped the tape, and I could tell that those last moments had drained him more than any other part of the conversation. This is why I'll never let this case go. He said, his voice barely louder than a whisper. Because I think, in my arrogance, I created the problems he has now. Because what I told him, I think that between our first two sessions, Joe went from believing he was the target of a monster that lives on people's psychosis to believing he was the monster. Think what that would do to a child who was the victim of sexual abuse. They're already at higher risk for disassociation. What I told Joe, it might have simply pushed him into full-blown disassociative identity disorder because the thought that he was responsible for his own abuse would have been too much to bear. So he created a second monster personality to blame it on that mimics the sadism he experienced from his father. And because we didn't see it, now, now that 
The monster personality is now so completely in control of his psyche that his mind and behavior have begun adapting to fulfill its imagined needs. Even just believing he was a monster this completely would be bad enough, as it would make him probably the most pure, sadistic psychopath in the history of psychiatry. But this is worse. This particular monster truly believes that he needs to be constantly exposed to bad thoughts in order to survive, the same way you or I need food. As a result, his sense of empathy has evolved to be able to figure out how to trigger psychosis within seconds of meeting someone. And not only that, but because of his residual suggestibility, he can trigger different forms of misery on command. His delusions are so strong, in other words, that they've tricked his mind into being able to do things no human mind should be able to do. Now, granted, it may be that all the people who say he triggered their bad memories and worst fears are just sharing the same delusion, or might just have forgotten revealing key details in his hearing. But even if that were true, one thing that is undeniable is that he developed an ability to induce suicide in people as a defense mechanism, much the same way his original personality died to make room for the monstrous one. And it's worked perfectly. Until now. He flipped the folder shut and looked at me again, his eyes boring into mine. That, he said softly, is why we need you. You aren't dead, and you experienced his tricks firsthand. You might be the only witness we have, aside from Rose, who treated him when he was far less advanced, and did it so long ago that we can't be sure her account is still accurate. You're the only person who can provide us a fully accurate debriefing on how we went about manipulating you. With that, he put one thin but surprisingly strong hand under my chin and held my face in place as he spoke the next few words. So, I'll ask you one more time, Parker. Tell me, for Joe's sake, if not for mine, what happened between him and you? Obvious at that point, I had no reason to withhold anything anymore. So I told them. I told them about Joe's seeming sanity, his extremely tidy explanation of his own confinement, and his reappropriation of the story of Fiberwood Flower. They listened attentively to the whole story, and when I'd finished, Dr. A looked more like he felt his age than he had since I'd met him. So, he said, he didn't rely on any details about your own life then. He simply worked out that you were an empathetic person and played on that. What's more, he blamed the mistreatment of his pet cat on his father, presumably because that's the personality that was responsible and was finally able to open up about his anger at his own abuse, even if indirectly. He actually might have solved his case after all, Parker. Thank you. Rose, I think we've solved this particular puzzle. 
We obviously can't tell Joe's parents what we know, so just tell them that we've worked out that his case really is incurable, and he'll have to stay here indefinitely for his own good. As for Parker, take him off the case. No, I said before she could react. Something felt desperately wrong to me about Dr. A's explanation, and I wasn't going to let it go just yet. The older man turned to me with an incredulous look. No? he asked. Parker, the case is solved. You just confirmed our hypothesis, and even if you hadn't, believe me, it would have taken a psychiatrist with far more experience than you to even begin to make that poor young man healthy, even if I were still practicing. But you're not. I cut across him. You retired, and I don't think you got it right. Something doesn't fit. How dare Relax, Thomas, said Dr. G, with an exasperated sigh. Let's hear him out. If Parker has another idea, I want to hear it. It can't hurt to get a second opinion. Dr. A grumbled, but waved his hand at me irritably. Now, starting to feel nervous again, I cleared my throat and began speaking before the tension could stop me. Before I try to advance my theory, I want to ask a few more questions just to make sure I've got some of the details right, I said. Oh, for the love of... Dr. A began, but Dr. G put up her hand. Yes, Parker? I want to start with the night terrors, I said. Did Joe ever mention them after he came back in? Dr. A looked on the point of replying shortly. But before he could, a thoughtful look flashed across his irritated face. I don't think you mentioned it, no, he said. Though by that point it might have been too late. Besides, he was sedated and his father probably didn't enjoy it without him experiencing the pain. Maybe, I said, turning to Dr. G. But I'm not sure that explanation of his monster's origins is right. Dr. G., didn't you say Joe was suffering from entomophobia, the fear of bugs? Dr. G. nodded slowly, very clearly not understanding where I was going. Yes, she said. It was something his parents mentioned when they first brought him in. And was he afraid of bugs when you treated him, I asked. Not particularly, she said. We tried some exposure therapy, but he didn't react much like an entomophobe. Obviously, the entomophobia was just a proxy for what he thought he was experiencing, said Dr. A. Rose, really, Dr. A. I cut him off. Can you play that description of the monster in Joe's wall again? Dr. A gave me a long, tired look, but eventually he complied and started skipping through the tape until he hit the relevant passage. It's big and hairy. It's got fly eyes and two big, super strong spider arms with really long fingers. Its body is a worm. He clicked the stop button, his face still sour. That would upset an entomophobe more than anything, don't you think? I asked. 
Again, not surprising if the antimophobia was a result of what he thought was hurting him, scoffed Dr. A. True, I said, but there's something else. Can you skip to the part where you tell him it's his imagination? Sighing, Dr. A complied and wound the tape forward until I hit the relevant passage. Hey, well, think of that big, scary monster like wetting the bed. It's just part of you that you allowed to get out of control. Che, that's funny. The monster's my pee-pee. Hey, not exactly. But they're both things you can control because they're part of you, Joe. Now, does that monster seem so scary anymore? Jay, no. And I'm going to tell it that it doesn't scare me the next time I see it. The tape stopped. Dr. Ray was looking increasingly annoyed, and Dr. G still looked puzzled. Now, he doesn't sound like a rape victim who's just been told it's his own fault at the end, does he? I asked. Pointedly, He sounds relieved. He sounds happy. It's not what you expect from someone going through a disassociative episode. And if he was as suggestible as you say, why didn't he start acting like he was the monster right then? Why still retain his old self? His mind probably hadn't fully processed it yet. Dr. A murmured, barely paying attention. Or, I said, there was no disassociative episode. In fact, what if there was no parental abuse or even no night terrors? What if Joe really was being tortured by something that knew how to play to his entomophobia and knows how to play to everyone else's fear just as skillfully? And what if... When he told it that it was part of him, it became the second personality that you think is due to abuse. What if we brought the monster in here with him when he came back? Oh, yes, and I'm sure his head turns on its axis and he spits pea soup, scoffed Dr. A, now starting to sound legitimately angry. Stop talking like an over-enthusiastic horror fan, son, and get a hold of yourself. You're a scientist, for God's sakes. Just hear me out, I said as calmly as I could. I wouldn't have believed it myself before tonight, but the thing is, I found myself breathing in uneasily. Look, I know you want to dismiss all that knowledge he has as some kind of fluke where people don't remember what they told him, but I know that's not true in my case. When Hank was dragging me away from his cell, he started laughing with exactly the same voice as something I still have nightmares about. And after the warning Dr. G gave me, I guarantee you I never told him anything else about my issues or what frightened me. So how did he know the exact right tone to use? You heard what you wanted to hear. Dr. A snapped. You expected a monster's voice, your mind reacted by pretending it was hearing the right one. But that's just it. I didn't. I thought he was sane. Mistreated. A patient. Uh, when Hank grabbed me. Yet I still heard that voice. Just when I would least expect something supernatural 
It happened anyway. And what if the others, like Dr. G, aren't lying? What if they really did never tell him anything, and yet he still knew how to scare them? Yes, yeah, a point, Thomas, said Dr. G. I'll grant you that I don't have the notes to prove it, but I have no idea how Joe would have found out about people calling me Nosy Rosie. I can't remember the topic ever coming up anywhere where he possibly could have overheard it. I don't think I even remembered that nickname until I found it scrawled on the wall of his room. He might have heard your name from someone and guessed it by luck, Rose. Dr. A exploded. Not many derogative words rhyme with your name, and it's not hard for a child to work out. You should know better than to dismiss symptoms as coincidence in order to save your theory, Thomas. Dr. G said softly. Dr. A still looked furious. All right, he said, venomous sarcasm now pouring through his voice. Suppose you're both right, even though it breaks our entire commitment to science into little pieces. What treatment can you suggest for treating a case of possession by the boogeyman, then? Do we pump his stomach? Drill a hole in his skull to let the demon out? Enlighten me. You said you'd ruled out other possibilities, I said in a deliberately calm voice. I don't suppose you had someone perform an exorcism. Sort of quack, do you think I... Oh, stop trying to pretend you're the purest science in the room, Thomas. Dr. G snapped. Sure, you kept it off the books, but we both know you tried a couple of unconventional things with Joe. Dr. A didn't answer, but for the first time he looked visibly uncomfortable. If you don't tell him, Thomas, I will. Oh, for heaven's sakes, Rose. We ruled that nonsense out and you know it, Dr. A blurted. Why encourage this overly imaginative insubordinate pup you've hired with useless data? So you did try an exorcism, I said coolly. What happened? What happened was exactly what you'd expect from a troublemaker like Joe, snarled Dr. A. The priest came in, started saying his rights, and it didn't do a damn thing. All Joe did was fuck with him the entire time, saying he was an angel sent to earth from the right hand of Christ, and that the priest was betraying his own god. Exactly the sort of thing anyone would say to discombobulate a religious person. And I'll bet it really discombobulated that particular priest, didn't it? I pressed. I'll bet he couldn't even finish the ritual, could he? He... he left early, yes, said Dr. A. What's your point? And did you try and record the process? Of course not, Dr. A sputtered. Don't want anyone knowing I entertained that kind of crankery. Pity, I said. Because I'll bet you anything that if you had recorded it, you wouldn't have picked him up saying anything. Because the patient you have in there, Joe himself, he's not the one doing this. Whatever came with him is what's doing this, and it's using him as a scapegoat. You seriously think some boogeyman is living rent-free in our hospital? Dr. A asked disdainful laughter pouring out of his voice. Rose, you might want to call Hank back with a straight jacket. 
I think our would-be savior here has gone insane himself. There may be a way for me to see if I'm right, I said quickly, now focusing all my attention on Dr. G. I know it's a strange hypothesis, but if you let me gather some enough data to test it, and it turns out wrong, I'll let you take me off the case right then. Dr. G snapped her fingers together and considered me for a few seconds. She looked intrigued in spite of herself. Finally, she waved her hand. Go on. I took a breath. With your permission, I said. I'd like to have tomorrow off so I can go talk to the only people who can confirm or deny both of these hypotheses, even indirectly. I'd like to visit Joe's family and have a look at the room where this happened. Oh yes, that will go wonderfully, sneered Dr. A. What are you planning to say? Excuse me, Mr. M, but did you get off on molesting your child and hearing him scream? Did the property happen to come with a warning that it might have a giant bug infestation? We both know there are subtler ways to look for clues that people are sadistic than that, I said, knowing I had to avoid taking the bait at all costs. And anyway, I'm only trying to see if my hypothesis has any sort of leg to stand on, and that won't set off their alarm bells at all. They'll feel completely comfortable. So, if Joe's parents are closet sadists, the clues should be fairly easy to spot. And if there's any evidence that something supernatural lived in his walls, or that the house was haunted in any way, that should be easy to find, too. I stared squarely into Dr. A's eyes. And you know what? Even if I don't see any evidence that the parents are off, if there's no evidence of anything supernatural there either, then I'll admit you were right and that my brain got caught up in an anti-scientific set of nonsense. Good enough? Once more, we looked at each other for a long moment, and by the time the gaze was broken, I could tell he had made his peace with the idea, even if he couldn't bring himself to respect me for entertaining it. Then my eye caught movement, and I turned to see that Dr. G had pulled out a pen and scribbled down a note in her calendar. Feeling my eyes, she looked up at me. Hmm. Oh, yes, in case it wasn't obvious, you can't have the day off. Whatever Thomas says. I want to know what you find. Don't worry. I'll tell your supervisory physician you're doing some field research at my request, she said. Now, what are you still doing here? Go home and get some sleep if you can. We need you alert tomorrow. I wish I could say I followed Dr. G's instructions and slept like a baby when I got home. But the fact is that what I'd heard that night made sleep virtually impossible. The gurgling, hacking, laughing river and my helpless dog's whimpers echoed through my dreams so many times I barely felt as if I was going to sleep, so much as stepping from one reality to another every time I closed my eyes. A small mercy was that my fiancé had another late night studying, and so I did not have to cope with the guilt and shame over waking her with my constant screaming exits from rest. 
Eventually, desperate for sleep, I washed down a few anti-anxiety pills with a copious amount of wine, and somehow the combination of chemicals drove the nightmare away. However, the sound of the alarm, which rang seemingly the next second after I'd closed my eyes, only compounded the horrors of the previous night with a splitting headache. Still, a shower and ibuprofen and a small ocean of coffee later, I felt at least functional enough to drive. So it was that I dug my copy of Joe's file out from under the container of now-stale fried rice I'd tried to scarf down the night previous, and looked at the first page to find his listed home address. The listed location instantly explained how Joe's family could afford Twenty years of inpatient treatment for a seemingly incurable condition. It was located in a part of the state so infamous for its wealth that its very name conjured images of gold-plated cars, palatial homes, and family-owned yachts. What was more, a quick look at MapQuest showed that Joe's family home stood at the center of a vast estate bordering the water. Under any other circumstances... I'd have been at least a bit curious to see what such opulence looked like up close. But in this case, the only thing that struck me was how isolated the place was, and therefore how far from help anyone there must have been. The one mercy was that it was only about an hour and a half's drive from where I was, and would be shorter if traffic was light. So, laying the MapQuest directions on the passenger seat of my car for easy reference, I pulled on my doctor's uniform, entered my car, and began the drive out to find whatever might be waiting for me at the birthplace of Joe's insanity, if that was indeed what it was. If I believed that nature had a sense of irony, that drive would have been a strong bit of evidence to support me. The weather was the sort of cool autumn balm that one hopes and prays for every year. The traffic, non-existent, and to top it off, my fiancée informed me that she would almost certainly be free for the rest of the evening once I returned, having just completed a very difficult exam for a course that would not capture her attention again for some months. In short, under any other circumstances... It would have been the perfect day which made the drive into what I now regarded as some sort of secular equivalent of the mouth of hell that much more unnerving. The postcard picturesqueness of that part of the state where Joe's family lived only enhanced this feeling of cognitive dissonance. I must have driven past hundreds of expansive yet tasteful manses of the sort only old money could construct, each of which looked as if it belonged in a Jane Austen novel rather than the United States. The few residents I saw wandering about the streets seemed as if they'd been plucked from a Brooks Brothers or J Press magazine spread, each decked out in clothes worth several months of my salary, and watches that probably would have cost me my annual income at least. My relative modest, though well-kept Ford Taurus, must have seemed conspicuously out of place alongside the armies of Mercedes, Audis, and Bentleys. This was the sort of place where pain of any kind was either flushed out with medication and trips to boutique psychiatrists, or simply kept at a respectable distance by copious expenditures. 
In short, it was a place where anything unpleasant, let alone supernatural horror, had been ruthlessly gentrified out of sight and out of mind. It wasn't until I was pulling up to the thick, wrought-iron gate of Joe's family estate that I felt any sense of ominousness in my surroundings, though in hindsight that may have partially been the result of being practically roared at to stop by a burly security guard who looked as if he belonged on a mission sponsored by Blackwater rather than guarding a quiet family home. Not wanting to seem unduly nervous, I explained in my best bedside manner that I was helping to treat the family's sick son at the mental hospital and was hoping to speak to them about his condition. The guy didn't seem mollified by this at first, but after some probing questions, all delivered in the same stentorian drill sergeant's snarl, he finally spun around with military precision and dialed in a few numbers on his security council. A woman's voice, tinged with the sort of polite, clenched-jaw accent that one usually only heard from elderly yacht club members, sounded from the microphone, and after some brief conversation with the martinet who just interrogated me, she agreed that I should be let in. The guard made no attempt at protest, but simply hung up smartly and pushed a button, causing the gate to swing open with almost perfect silence and smoothness. My stomach now churning with the nerves I had been trying to suppress since setting out on the drive, I pulled my car through. The driveway to Joe's family home ran up a gradual, obsessively manicured hill, surrounded by a small forest of equally well-kept trees. At the top of the hill, surrounded by more such trees, stood the house itself. A towering, strawberry hill-style house built with stone that seemed to transform the sun's rays into a radiant pastel glow. I pulled up in front and handing my keys to a stiff-necked valet, who looked pained to even set foot in a car as modest as mine, stepped out to go face whatever the house had in store for me. As I walked up the sparkling limestone stairs, the door opened and a wispy, middle-aged woman, whose face looked the picture of gracefully aged beauty, swept down to meet me. I must admit that my first thought upon meeting her was this was hardly the sort of person I could imagine conspiring to keep the sexual molestation of a child a secret, even out of denial. She had a kind air about her, but it was girded with such naturally aristocratic steel that I imagined she must have been born ringing a bell to summon servants. Dr. H., she said in the same prep school like inflected accent I'd heard over the income. Such a pleasure to receive you. Dr. G called ahead to let me know you'd be coming today, and I must say I was relieved. I've been wondering ever so much about my poor Joseph, and haven't heard almost anything from the hospital other than the bills, of course, so you can imagine my pleasure at your calling. Please do come in. Thank you, Mrs. M., I said graciously, shaking her hand uh, with what I had hoped was an appropriate professionalism. I'm very glad to be able to have caught you at home. I was hoping to speak to at least one of Joe's parents. Well, I'm afraid you'll have to make do with me. She said somewhat sadly. Jess's father has been dead for the past ten years. 
However, if I can be of help, I will be happy to. Just come into the sitting room and we'll talk. The sitting room was actually a high-vaulted chamber, copiously furnished with aged mahogany and cherry wood, with what looked to be a few genuine mounted animal heads. Unaccustomed to the trappings of such advanced wealth, I naturally found myself looking around with no small amount of wonder when one particular mount made me jump back in shock and utter a small gasp. It was, to be blunt, not the head of anything I had ever seen or wished to see again. If I had found out it was genuine, I might have had nightmares for the rest of my life. Protruding from the plaque to which it was grafted, sketched a bulbous, almost shapeless head nearly a foot long, bearing a pair of massive, sickly yellow segmented eyes and several rows of pinches that looked like they must have once dripped with venom. Seeing my horror, Mrs. M. followed my gaze and shuddered herself. "'Awful thing, isn't it?' she asked. "'I've never had the heart to take it down, though. Don't worry, it's only an artistic piece, nothing real. Charles, Joseph's father, I mean, was quite an accomplished hunter, and when Joseph's night terrors first started, he thought it might help him if we pretended he'd caught and killed the thing and mounted its head in this room.' We commissioned an artist to get a description of what it looked like from Joseph himself and to study his drawings, and that's what he produced. She sniffed bitterly. The hideous thing didn't reassure Joseph, of course. If anything, I, I suspect it scared him more. But since his long hospitalization, I've kept it here partially to remember how much Charles wanted to see Joseph cured impartial as a sort of symbol of hope for me that one day Joseph might beat the emotional illness that made him imagine the filthy thing in the first place. Still transfixed with disgust and fascination, it took quite a bit of effort to tear my eyes away from that monstrous depiction of a six-year-old boogeyman. However, the mention of his night terrors did remind me of my purpose, and I turned to look at Joe's mother. Mrs. M., it's actually Joe's night terrors that brought me here, I began, having practiced my lie several times in the car on the way. Even though we've tried many courses of treatment with your son, we have begun to wonder if his more lasting psychosis might somehow be connected to his earlier night terrors. We never really explored them when he first came in, and perhaps there's something we would have learned if we had asked about them in the first place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
And Joe's mother gave me a searching look, and for the first time it struck me that, despite her exceedingly polished appearance, she really looked quite anxious, even desperate for some good news. Dr. H., firstly, call me Martha, she said. If you are serious about trying to bring back my boy after all these years, then at the very least we should be on first-name terms. Secondly, I am glad you are exploring this particular line of questioning. I have often wondered if Joseph might have been spared whatever is wrong with him if we'd brought him in to see a doctor about his night terrors to begin with. So, ask whatever you like. If I know the answer, I will give it to you. I nodded. Thank you, Mrs. Martha. Martha, can you tell me when Joseph's night terrors started? Martha nodded. About when he was three, she said, we'd moved to this house and decided it was time for him to have his own room. I was pregnant with his little sister Eliza at the time, and while we could have knocked down a few walls and expanded the nursery, all of our friends told us that three was too old to still be sleeping in a room for babies. So we had a decorator come in and remodel one of the smaller attic rooms into the most charming little boy's room you can imagine and put Joseph in there. He absolutely loved his new room when he first saw it, and his nanny practically had to drag him down to meals to get him to leave. But that night... She swallowed hard and put up a hand. If you don't mind, Dr. H., I think I'll pour myself a drink before we continue. Can I get you one as well? Parker, please, I said, and no thank you. She stood up and walked briskly to a hand-carved globe bar and poured a generous helping of amber liquid into a fine crystal glass, which she swirled for a few moments before taking the first sip. Apparently mollified, she sat back down and continued talking. That night, Parker, you cannot imagine how terrible it was. Joseph began screaming like he was being murdered barely an hour after we put him to bed. And when we went to check on him, he told us that a giant bug had got hold of his head with its pinchers and was running its claws over him. His blade clothes didn't show any signs of damage and his face was completely unharmed so we chalked it up to a nightmare from being in a new room. We thought it would go away after that night, but it didn't. It kept happening. She took another sip of her drink, and this time it was longer and more pained. We tried everything, she said, sounding helpless. We set traps near the wall, he said it came from but they were never sprung when he started screaming and nothing as big as he described could have avoided it. Then my husband got in a sculptor to make that thing you saw when we first walked in, but that didn't do any good either. Eventually, we decided that perhaps Joe was seeing insects around the house and they were triggering the problem because he was so terrified of insects that just the sight of one would send him into hysterics. So we hired an exterminator as a live-in servant and asked him to go over the house every day to kill any bugs that crawled in. Nothing worked. The night terrors just kept happening. Martha drained more of the drink. Charles was insistent that he would get over it eventually. 
that all little boys have recurring nightmares or boogeymen of some kind and that this was no different. He worried that bringing Joe to a mental ward might affect his chances at getting into a good grade school. But after three years of it, I could bear it no longer and brought him into you. She finished the last of the drink and, clearly wanting to maintain her composure, refilled it very quickly. I didn't interrupt. I sensed this was a story that it was taking all of her to get out. When he came out of dear old Thomas A.'s office, Parker, you would not believe that little boy had ever been scared of anything, she said softly. He kept excitedly telling us on the way home that he wasn't scared of the monster anymore, that he was brave now, and that the monster was just him scaring himself. I'm not scared of me, Mommy, so I can't be scared of it. The wizard in the castle for sad people said so. That's what he kept repeating. She put one hand to her mouth and I could see tears start to well up in her eyes. She took another sip of her drink. We tried to give him the sedatives that night, but he kept insisting he wouldn't need them. He said he wanted to confront the monster and let it know it couldn't scare him anymore. And when he didn't make a sound that night, we assumed whatever the doctor had told him must have done its work. Then, the next morning, we found Joseph squatting in the corner making these awful noises and leering at us. We haven't seen him since. I shuddered. It was inconclusive as far as my theory, but hearing it described in such grim detail only drove home the tragedy of whatever had happened to Joe. Still, I had to make sure my theory was correct, so I pushed forward with what I'd come there to ask. Martha, I have a favor to ask you. It may help with Joe's treatment. She nodded fiercely as she drained the rest of her glass almost in one gulp. Yes, she said, anything. We think Joe might have gotten the idea that rather than the monster being his imagination, part of him was the monster. I said slowly, making sure to sugarcoat the situation. That means we need to know as much as we can about its origins. In one of the tapes we have of Joe's therapy sessions, he says that the monster came out of the wall. If you don't mind, I'd like to see his room, and with your permission, I'd like to examine some of that wall to see if there's anything strange about it. Perhaps evidence of an infestation that your exterminator may have missed. Martha didn't seem to need time to consider. She stood up immediately and began to cross out of the room. Seeing that I hadn't moved, she jerked her head impatiently. Well, what are you waiting for? she asked. Of course, the answer is yes. Now, come on, keep up. I'll have our handyman fetch you some tools. I was going to object that I'd brought my own, but seeing as I'd left them in the car, that seemed a pointless distraction. Besides, a place like this could probably afford much better materials for knocking down a wall than I could. So, instead, I stood up and followed Martha M. out of the room and up several flights of stairs to Joe's old attic room. It was obvious, as soon as I walked in that the room hadn't been lived in or even entered in quite some time. Dust kicked all the surfaces, and some of the old toys in the room looked like they'd rusted. 
Even so, I could tell from looking around that it was a room that should have been able to put even the most nervous child at ease. Toys were scattered everywhere, ranging from action figures to stuffed animals to expansive model train tracks that ran the length of the room. The walls were painted a deep, relaxing blue, except on one side, where a massive, hyper-realistic mural of a bright red race car had been painted in painstaking detail. The bed looked less like a bed and more like a cloud given physical form, so covered was it in pillows and thick downy sheets. And the floor, unlike the rest of the house, was not hardwood, but was instead covered in lush, soft carpeting of the same soothing blue as the rest of the room. Nevertheless, Martha hesitated on the threshold of the room, as if the sight of it alone shook her resolve. Then, a steely look entering her eyes, she walked in and beckoned me toward a roughly ten-foot-long expanse of wall immediately to the left of the bed. She pointed at it with a disgusted look on her face. This is where Joseph said the thing would come from, she said bitterly. Frankly impossible, of course. Even if I believed his monster could exist, it couldn't hide here. This is one of the outermost walls of this part of the house. There's nothing on the other side but open air, not even a small crawl space. She seemed to be talking less to me at this point and more to herself, as if trying to convince herself of her own sanity. Then meeting my eyes, she spoke more directly. The handyman should be up in a few minutes, she said bluntly. I'll have him wait just down the hall until you've finished. Kindly let him know once your investigation is concluded so he can fix any damage you do to the room. I hope you find what you're looking for. Thank you, Martha, I said. She nodded stiffly but graciously, then swept out of the room. As promised, a few minutes later, a sour-faced big man arrived bearing a heavy bag of tools and even a large fire axe, which he thrust at me with a grunt before stomping off down the hall. I called a thank you at his back, but he didn't react. And now there was nothing else to do but investigate the room. Reasoning that I should look for some more mundane clues that might explain any part of Joe's psychosis before resorting to knocking down the wall... I started going through the seemingly endless supplies of toys, games, and books in the room. Yet aside from the obvious absence of anything that bore even faintly insect-like creatures, or that touched on subjects related to insects, I found nothing. Aside from how numerous they were, there was nothing remarkable about Joe's personal effects. These were just the sort of things you'd expect to see in a wealthy child's room. There was nothing else to do but to investigate the wall, then. Deciding I didn't want to go full shining on it until I'd exhausted more subtle methods, and hoping I wouldn't have to at all, I first started by tapping on it with a hammer, trying to see if I could find any spot that sound hollow. No luck. The wall seemed to be solid straight through. And if that was true, tearing it down might not reveal anything. It might just be wasting my time. But I wasn't ready to give up yet. 
Deciding I wanted to see if the wall was the same material strength straight through, I pulled out a power drill and fitted it with the longest bit I could find. Then I flicked it on, and bracing myself, pushed the drill into the wood. It splintered and cracked as I worked and was hard enough to sullenly defy the drill even against considerable force. But ultimately I was able to force the bit through until I met no resistance at all. The wall was the same, all the way through. Sighing with equal parts annoyance and relief, I moved to put the drill back when something almost imperceptible caught my eye. As I said before, the floor was covered in carpeting of the same color as the walls. However, near Cho's old bed, there were two areas where the carpet looked slightly uneven. Puzzled, and wondering if it was a trick of the light, I reached out to feel the disturbances only to find that the carpet had been partially ripped up from the floor in both cases, only to be, imperfectly, set back in place. Intrigued, I pulled at what seemed to be the origin point of the rip, and a long stretch of the carpet came loose from the floor, sliding back as easily as if I were pulling up a bedsheet. It was then that I noticed that the floor underneath, rather than made of the same hardwood mahogany as the other parts of the house, was instead made of some sort of lighter-colored, more modest hardwood that the carpet had clearly been intended to conceal. I mention this because it was only due to the light color of that wood that I was able to spot something that would have otherwise eluded my vision. A trail of small brown stains that followed the same trajectory as the ripped-up carpet and stopped at the solid wall behind me. If I'd had any doubts as to what these were, it was immediately destroyed by my discovery of a few small shards of hard material near the foot of the bed, which my medical education immediately identified as a child-sized human fingernails. Someone had been clinging onto the carpet so hard that their fingernails had been ripped out, and the carpet itself torn up, leaving a trail of blood that stopped at the wall. Now I knew I had no choice but to assail that wall. I grabbed the fire axe and began my attack, pouring every ounce of strength my muscles could produce into each swing. Once more the wall put up resistance, but the sharpness of the blade and the desperation of my assault pushed through easily, and a chunk of the wall came loose. As it did, it disclosed the mind-freezing horror that made me wonder if I had either already lost my mind or was about to lose it. Inside the wall, with the wood sculpted around it so perfectly that it looked as if it had been carved in place, was a tiny, child-sized, human skull. Already horrified, I had to duck away from the wall and cover my mouth to keep from retching as the smell of twenty years of decomposition, hidden by that carved-out tomb, assailed my nose, Worse still was the incredulity I felt. What I was smelling and seeing seemed impossible. There was no way that anyone would have carved an alcove that perfectly sized to fit a child's corpse into the middle of a solid wall, 
particularly one that you'd have to knock down to even find. There was no point, no purpose. Then, in a sudden cataclysm of horror, it all came together. First, the words Joe had said to his mother after his first hospital visit. I'm not scared of me, Mommy, so I can't be scared of it. The wizard in the castle for sad people said so. Then the first clue that had guided Dr. A to his diagnosis. I worked out why his delusions kept changing. They shift every time someone calls him a new nasty name. And finally, Joe's awful, innocent, prophetic words from the audio tape. It goes back in the walls when they come. It melts like ice cream. It looks like it is the wall. I'm going to tell you that it doesn't scare me the next time I see it. The rush of thoughts that blasted my mind then were so terrible that I couldn't help screaming aloud, because in that instance I knew what had happened had been far worse than either I or Dr. A had speculated. The real Joe M. had been dead ever since the night after his first return from the hospital. He'd been suffocated to death in a tomb created by hands that could melt through a solid wall. The hands of the thing that had tormented him. And then having been told that it was Joe, the monster, living off his fear and suffering, had assumed his form and proceeded to the all-it-could-eat buffet that was our castle for sad people. There it had tormented two decades' worth of unsuspecting mental patients and doctors It had grown fat on years of bad thoughts that it had barely had to work to produce. And with every attempt we made to cure that unnamed malevolent parasite, we had sent it a new victim. If I had had any faith in the ultimate curative powers of science and medicine remaining before then, that revelation destroyed it. But painful as that feeling was, it also brought a sort of cold clarity. I knew what I would have to do. Firstly, I would have to alert Martha M. as to what I had found, and then I would have to find a way to get justice for the poor murdered boy whose corpse I had just disinterred. I picked up the fire axe again and was about to knock away the bits of the wall covering the rest of my six-year-old Joe's hidden body, when Martha came running into the room. I suppose in retrospect, my scream must have made her wonder what had happened. When she looked at the wall, I think her mind must have at first refused to accept what was there, for all she could do was stare, with wide, uncomprehending eyes, at the child-sized skeleton that had been entombed in that cursed room for so long. When she finally broke eye contact with it, it was to look up at me with a childlike, pleading look that seemed to implore me, the doctor, to provide a rational explanation. Dr. H., she whimpered, what is the meaning of this? I couldn't even begin to formulate an answer, so I didn't even try. Instead, I replied with a question of my own. Mrs. M., may I keep that fire axe? 
still looking at me with a mixture of fear and incomprehension. She slowly nodded. After my horrifying discovery, the next few hours passed in a haze. I suggested to Martha, half-heartedly, that she should call the police, but she seemed to be too much in shock to really listen to me. Either way, it seemed that I was probably no longer a welcome presence on her property, especially considering how I'd probably just wiped away whatever traces of hope she had left that she might get her son back, while also raising all sorts of uncomfortable and sanity-threatening questions about what exactly she'd been paying to hospitalize for the past 20 years. It was best, I reasoned, if I wasn't the first psychiatrist she talked to after that, so I excused myself and headed for my car. I recall it being about 4 p.m. when I left the cursed mansion, fire axe in hand, whereupon I immediately drove back toward the hospital. But I didn't head straight there. If there was a way to catch the thing that called itself Joe... Admitting to what it had done, I wanted to be able to use it, so I stopped off at a dinky radio shack near the hospital and bought a small tape recorder and a blank cassette. I figured if it didn't know I had the cassette, it might slip up and let itself get caught on record. Then I drove to the hospital. I arrived at around 5.45 p.m. and considered taking the fire axe out of my trunk to end this problem then and there, but my knowledge of the typical staffing procedures stopped me. There would be too many people to try anything now, and while I did want to inflict some sort of revenge on the monster, I also didn't want to get locked up for it. All the same, even if I couldn't kill Joe right then, I was definitely going to get some answers out of him. Whatever else he might have been... He was still a prisoner at the mercy of whoever held the key to his room, and just now, that was me. I stormed into the hospital and headed straight for the cursed creature's lair. Once outside, I snapped the tape into my recorder, hit the record button, and concealed it in my lab coat. Then I shoved my key under the door and pushed it open furiously, my righteous anger overpowering whatever trace of fear I might have felt at facing this unknown agent of terror. Joe looked up as I entered the room. Seeing it was me, his face split into its usual crooked grin, as if nothing whatsoever had happened since my failed attempt to release him. When he spoke, it was in the same hoarse rasp he'd used while pretending to be sane. Well, well, well. Long time no see, Doc. Cut the crap, I snapped at him. What are you? What am I? Boy, she really did a number on you, didn't she? I told you I'm a sane man that they're using for my... Don't you fucking dare, I growled. I've just gone to the real Joe's house. I've seen what was in the wall. I'll ask you again. I know you're not human, so what are you? The next part, I hesitate to write down as I remember it, for reasons that will be abundantly clear as you read on. However, I have spent years trying to convince myself, with all the tools psychiatry can offer, 
that what I remember is only my imagination. Nevertheless, the memory stayed stubbornly the same. Therefore, if I am to convey the danger I feel a duty to warn you all about, I have to give my experience the credence it deserves and report it as I recall it. Even if I myself find it more comforting to pretend it was my own mind, momentarily abandoning sanity. But the Hippocratic Oath says, first, do no harm. And so I cannot let that pretense get in the way of protecting people from the chance, however slight, that what I saw and heard represents real danger. Now back to the story. Joe stared at me for a long moment. My knowledge was a development he evidently hadn't expected. Then his smile widened and kept on widening until his cheeks peeled themselves apart and slid open into a bloody rictus. Skin connected to his forehead peeled off, causing blood to gush down his face, matting his hair as his skull caved in from an invisible blow. It was exactly the state my dog Marty's head had been in when they'd fished him out of the river. When the thing that called itself Joe opened its mouth again, blood dribbled from its exposed gums, and it laughed with the moist, rotting wheeze from my nightmares. A chill ran down my spine, but I ignored it. The message of that carefully chosen laugh was clear. It was claiming credit for Marty's death. I forced myself to react with anger rather than the fear it wanted. You fucking liar, I spat at the thing. You just want me to think you're what killed Marty in order to frighten me? Well, the... The same way you knew looking like some giant bug would scare the real Joe. There was no reply. Only more blood gushing from the thing's mutilated mouth. However, seeming to want to communicate something, it stood up and crossed to me. I wanted to sock it in the jaw and run, but was too transfixed to move. Fortunately, something in the way it moved suggested it didn't mean to attack me. It raised one of Joe's hands and pressed right on the pocket where I had concealed my tape recorder. Then, with another moist laugh, it wagged its finger at me in mock reproach. Here again, the implied meaning was obvious. That won't do you any good. Another chill spiked over me. I ignored this one, too, but with more effect. What are you? I repeated as fiercely as I could. I must know. The thing's jaw seemed to scrape itself loose, and this time its dank, decayed voice managed to form words. What do you think? It was a trap. It wanted me to give it a new part to play. I wasn't going to fall for it. I think you're a fluffy little bunny rabbit, I said in a mocking voice. I think I'll call you Cuddles. The thing gave another horrible horse laugh. <laughs> you don't. It paused for longer than usual as more blood dribbled down its chin. Believe that. I glared at it. 
Maybe not, but I'm not going to feed you a roll. I know how you work, I said. But I'll tell you what I know. I know you killed Joe. You killed him and took his place. It didn't reply. For a few seconds, it didn't react at all. Then, with another blood-soaked chuckle, it jerked its head up and down, nodding in agreement. I suppressed a shudder. Why? I asked, more out of reflex than actual curiosity. The thing paused, seeming to seriously consider my question. When it opened its mouth to speak again, I nearly choked on the fetid smell of its breath as it leaned in close to me. Nothing like me ever got the chance to be, to be human. I finished in a low, horror-struck whisper. It wagged its finger at me again, shaking its head with exaggerated knowingness. To be prey. It finished, laying special emphasis on the last word. I felt ill, but I forced myself to confront the situation with as much detachment as I could. It was taunting me, but at least it was being honest. But why stay here? I asked in my most detached clinical voice. You could have been free all those years. You could have tortured people without being imprisoned. Why spend so long here? Didn't know how to be prey, the thing hissed. Here, so much food. Here, safe. Here, I learn how prey think. It jabbed one finger at my chest, then at me. Curious, it wheezed. Like you. Reflexively, I stepped back, appalled at the implication. I'm nothing like you, whatever you are. I snarled before I could stop myself. Its laughter hacked and wheezed in my ears. Yes, you are, it rasped. Both live on misery. You profit. I eat. Shut up, I tried to shout. But it came out hollow and tremulous. The thing was leaning very far into me now, so close it felt grotesquely intimate. Could help you could show you what other prey fear. I felt so sick I had to lean against the wall, but I was still defiant. I faced it with all the courage I could muster. No, I said. I know what you're doing. You know my worst fear is not being able to save people. You're just making me think you can help me do that so you can watch me fail and feed on my misery, too. The thing's expression, if you could call its mutilated face that, darkened momentarily. I'd seen through its ruse, and that made it angry. However, in a moment its smile had returned, and with it, 
a laugh like a waterfall of acid. <laughs> you can't fight, came that hideous, croaking burble. Stupid prey, you're helpless. More fool you, I said, reckless, bravery entering my voice. It's you that's helpless the way you are now. All you can do is pull parlor tricks to try and scare people, but if that fails, you're up shit creek. Then why not try to kill me, sneered the thing. Get axe, come back, try. I look forward. I was momentarily at a loss for words, and started to feel intimidation creeping in on my consciousness. Then a sudden thought crossed my mind, and I found myself returning its mocking, sadistic leer with one of my own. I don't need to try to kill you, I said softly. All I need to do is get everyone here to stop paying attention to you, which I can do now that I've seen what you did to the real Joe, and really, that's what would kill you, isn't it? If we stop sending in orderlies, nurses, and doctors, you'll have no victims. You'll starve to death in here. Well, enjoy whatever bad thoughts you're getting out of me, you fucking parasite, because they're the last ones you're going to ever eat. That I promise you. I had nothing more to say to it. I turned around and was about to leave when I heard the thing speak again, this time at a normal speed and in a normal Joe's voice, and somehow that only made its last words more dissonant and disconcerting. Doc, listen to the tape. For your own sake, listen to it before you try anything. Please. I turned back in spite of myself. Joe was looking at me with a fearful expression, all trace of blood and mutilation having vanished from his face and clothes. It didn't give the sight time to scare me. I turned around and slammed the door behind me, leaving the hospital in a rage. When I got back in my car, I pulled out the tape recorder I'd carried in, stopped it, and rewound the tape. Then, as I drove home, I pushed the tape into my car's tape deck, to see what, if anything, I'd recorded. I wish I could say I'd seen the results coming, but unfortunately, even I'd held up some hope that I could gather hard evidence that I wasn't insane. You probably guessed what I'd heard. My own voice and my own angry protestations were preserved clearly on the tape. But the mocking jeering responses of the thing that called itself Joe were nowhere to be heard. Instead, all I could hear was the terrified pleading of a familiar, reedy man's voice, raspy from disuse, but otherwise thoroughly ordinary. Needless to say, I smashed the tape with a hammer when I got home and threw it away. But even with that bit of evidence removed, I knew that I couldn't tell anyone what I'd learned. I had no evidence, and anyone else would think it sounded like I'd gone insane. Truth be told, I wasn't even sure if I was still sane myself. 
I realized that in the movies, this would end with me overcoming my doubts, going back to confront the monster that called itself Joe, and shoving an axe blade through its skull or something dramatic like that. But unfortunately, while this story certainly had its moments of Hollywood-style horror psychodrama, it doesn't end with it. I never did go back to the hospital that night. In fact, I'm not sure if I ever went back to Joe's room again, and not for the reason you might think. Why do you say I'm not sure? Well, that's the last odd part of this story. When I got home from the hospital after that last visit with the thing that called itself Joe, I found my fiancé waiting for me. To her credit, she immediately realized that something was wrong and that I didn't want to talk about it. So she poured me a few drinks and gave me a few other adult comforts, which tired me out enough that I went to sleep. What's more, miraculously, I didn't dream of Marty, though the dream I did have arguably keeps me up these days far more than any childhood regret. I dreamt I went back to the hospital, but it wasn't the way the hospital should have been at night. Everything was pitch black, and it was only the implacable notion that sometimes happens in dreams, and even made me able to navigate. What's more, I didn't enter via the main entrance, but instead via a little-known fire exit that somehow had been left open. Ordinarily, I would have been entirely disoriented, stumbling up a flight of stairs in the dark, with no idea where they came out, but in the dream... I knew exactly where I was going and didn't miss a step. My destination, as you probably guessed, was the cell belonging to the thing that called itself Joe. But the path there didn't feel anything like normal. Perhaps it was the fact that in the dream I was barefoot, but the floor underneath felt overly slippery, almost wet, like the janitor had just been over it with a mop. But this wasn't the most obviously dreamlike feature of the experience. That happened when I got to the cell itself, only to hear the latch click and see the door open by itself from the inside. I didn't have time to react to this dreadful sight, though, because no sooner was the latch drawn back than the door burst outward and I found myself swept up in a rush of stagnant, filthy water that smelled incongruously like moss and soil. It poured out of the cell, almost as if I'd opened the door to a sealed aquarium and swept down the hall in a torrent, the sound of moist, rotting laughter echoing with deafening volume along with it. There might have been more to the dream, but the rush of cold, wet sensation against my skin felt so real it jolted me awake, and I felt my fiancé frantically shaking me. Apparently, I'd woken her up when I started mumbling in a deep, watery voice, which scared her enough that she had to rouse me. What's more, I must have sweated through my nightclothes because they were like dripping rags when I woke up. At least, I tell myself I sweated through them because the alternative is just too unnerving. Anyway, needless to say, when I went back to the hospital the next day, and saw the electrician's van as well as several police cruisers, I suspected something was up. It didn't take long for one of the orderlies to tell me the story. 
Apparently, there'd been a power outage the night before, and in the process, someone had broken into the hospital and allowed one of the patients to escape. I didn't need to ask which one, though I put on as much of a show of surprise as possible, when Dr. G, she sent me a memo instructing me that I wouldn't need to care for Joe anymore. His escape the night before had ensured that the police questioned me as a suspect in his escape, of course, but with my fiancé willing to vouch for my whereabouts the previous night, I was soon let off. The hospital staff, particularly the two orderlies who followed me, were slower to believe my innocence, but eventually even they came around. I tried several times to see Dr. G after that and tell her what I'd found, but somehow, whenever I showed up, she was either out or had a meeting or for some reason or another couldn't see me. I don't blame her. She probably wanted to put the whole thing behind her. I suspect this desire got even stronger when news came that Dr. Ray had died of a heart failure shortly after a home invasion. I, of course, have my suspicions about who the invader was, but I can't prove it. I do know, though, if Dr. A's worst fears was not being able to keep Joe contained, then seeing him break into his house would have certainly fulfilled the thing's ghastly purpose. Still, for the longest time, one thing didn't make sense. Why had the thing escaped then? It had been living comfortably in the hospital for decades and had neutralized the apparent threat I opposed. Why decide to risk its luck outside? I'll never know the answer for sure, but I have a theory, and it fills me with guilt when I think of it. You see, I keep replaying that last conversation that I had with the thing, and what I remember most is that its reason for staying was that it didn't know how to be prey, i.e. human, and that it turned down my fluffy bunny rabbit taunt because I didn't believe it. What's more, all its means of inflicting psychological torture, while they relied on knowledge a human couldn't have, were still methods that a human could use, which leads me to conclude that as long as everyone on staff treated the thing as if it were human, it had to go along with their perception. So, in his own terribly sad way, poor little Joe had imprisoned it by making it pretend to be human. True, one patient had called it a fucking monster, but it must have sensed that he meant a metaphorical monster, not a literal one. He didn't believe it was inhuman, so it couldn't change. And, as long as no one else called its bluff, it was trapped in that form. But then I had to come along and tell it that not only did I believe it wasn't human, but I knew it wasn't which meant that I must have freed it to assume the most effective shape it could, whether it was a monster, a person, or the wave of stagnant river water that I felt in my dream. It was free to assume the actual form of what had killed Marty, rather than simply aping its voice, and with its ability to shapeshift, restored, it had no need to rely on our hospital as a sanctuary where people were trained not to believe in monsters." Or at least, that's my theory. But, though that thought kept me up at night, outwardly, I tried to give the appearance of having moved on, 
I think I might have even convinced the rest of the staff that I'd managed it too. The last few months of my residency passed without incident. I came up with successful treatment plans for a number of other patients, some of whom earned me plaudits for my supervisor, and even acquired something of a minor celebrity due to being the one doctor who hadn't gone insane or resigned after treating Joe. If I'd been more willing to talk about what had happened, I probably could have kept this mythical status going. But as it was, I kept my mouth shut. I didn't want them to think I was insane, and besides, I had other things to worry about. Needless to say, I was told there'd be a job for me if I stayed through my residency, but for equally obvious reasons, I declined to take the offer. In fact, when I got an excuse to resign my residency earlier, I jumped at the chance. You see, my fiancé had been letting the stress of her last semester in college get to her in a very serious way, and after a while, it became clear that I should probably take some time off to make sure she made it through okay. The precipitating event was probably when, after one particularly hard day, she failed to come home entirely. This prompted me to call her friends and ask in a near panic where her favorite hangouts were, just in case she'd gotten too drunk and hadn't actually gone missing. After a frantic drive from bar to bar in the neighboring town, I found her at last, slumped against the wall of an alleyway and puking, her luxurious blonde hair askew and her dress stained. She was so drunk that she didn't seem to notice when I called her name the first few times. But after I got close enough, she seemed to recognize me, though with quite a bit of blurriness. The next day, I put in my two weeks, squared away my references, and started looking for work someplace more suited to my skills. In the years since, I've worked with any number of brilliant psychiatrists in many nicer hospitals, but increasingly... I found that my heart wasn't in that kind of work. I couldn't get the words of that thing about how I lived off the misery of other people off my mind. It nearly drove me to quit medicine, hence the title of the story. But I haven't quit. Instead, I've decided to use the knowledge I gained from that one patient in the best way I can think of. I've opened a private practice where I specialize in treating children with paranoid delusions or rather fear disorders. Some of these have been fairly standard cases, while others have involved shared delusions, like the boy whose parents thought he was being haunted by his aborted sister's ghost. But every now and then, I get a child who tells me about a monster that won't let them sleep. Sometimes it comes from the wall, sometimes it comes from the closet, Sometimes it comes from under the bed, but wherever it comes from, it's always the thing they're most afraid of. Except now there's another detail, which makes me even have trouble sleeping. Sometimes the monsters goad their victims, saying they're just children who've gotten turned into monsters, and asking the children they torment to free them by telling them they're people too. Worse... Sometimes I'm not sure if those children are really even asking for my help, or if they're just more of whatever Joe was gloatingly showing off their handiwork to the one person who would know how to stop them. Sometimes I think they're laughing in my face behind those ostensibly innocent, terrified children's eyes. 
But whatever the reason, these children tell me these stories about what terrorizes them at night, and whether all of them even still are children or not, the fact is that some of them are. And those children are the people I'm in medicine for. Because unlike other doctors, I know what the stakes of those cases are. Maybe I'm paranoid too, but I remember the words of the thing that called itself Joe. I remember how it exalted that nothing like me has ever got the chance to be prey, and I shudder at the connotations of those first three words, because I know what they mean. Whatever Joe was, he wasn't the only one. There might be an entire species of those things living alongside us, and only now waking up to the fact that they can live among us. Well, I'll be damned if I let another one take over a child's life. And I guess my suspicions are usually right, because the kids I treat who do suffer from those sorts of nocturnal visitations rarely need a second session after I'm done with them. Until now, only my wife knew this story, and like I said, she believes me. If you don't, that's fine. I'm not sure if I believe it myself, or if this is just an episode of some larger psychosis that one day will drive me as insane as my patients. But if you're the parents, or psychiatrists yourselves, and you have patients or children who are telling you stories like the real Joes, then this is the warning I am obligated by medicine and by my common humanity to give to you. Whatever you do, don't tell your child that the monsters they see are only their imagination. Because if even a little bit of this story is true, you might be signing their death warrant. And many others, too. And the worst part is, you might not even know for sure, because now that they know how humans act, they can use their mind-reading abilities not to just scare you, but to ape the behavior and memories of whoever you think they are. Who knows? They might make the moment when they finally do drive you mad taste that much sweeter to the foul things. Thanks for listening. That's all I personally have to say, but there's just one more thing. Because I don't like thinking about this too much if I can help it, I've been leaving it up to my wife to post this and filter through the comments to find ones worth responding to. So I figure I'll give her the last word, since it's thanks to her diligence that I've been able to find such a willing audience, which has given me the smallest jot of hope that my efforts to stop the thing that called itself Joe might not have been in vain. Thank you all. I'll leave it to her now. All my best, Parker. Hi. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you all openly, rather than simply operating behind the scenes for once. I can't tell you how happy I am with the reception you all have given Parker's story. He seems a new man, knowing someone out there believes him. Truth is, the idea to post this began when Parker told me the story in the first place, because while that experience seemed to help him, I think he wanted to reach more than just me. I think he wanted to warn people, but didn't know how, or if anyone would believe him. I wanted to help, but I also didn't want him to get locked up for telling the wrong people, so I did some searching and found this forum. From there, I just copied and pasted the installments as he wrote them, 
and screened the comments after they were posted. Must be doing well, because he's been thrilled to know there's someone out there who believes him. In fact, knowing open-minded people like you are out there now also gives me quite a bit of hope. Either way, thank you for listening to this story. I know I've kept you all waiting a long time to get to the full story, but Parker did write slowly, and we decided we had to ration it in small doses. Neither he nor I thought you'd have believed it as easily if we'd dropped the whole thing on you and asked you to accept it outright. Well, that and I did enjoy seeing your reactions a bit. If I ever showed Parker the threads on this story in full, he probably would write a book about fear with all the theories you people have thrown out about what he was dealing with. Those theories speak volumes about what all of you are afraid of, and that's awfully personal. So I suppose it's only fair I share a few personal details with you. First off, this really was painful for Parker to even think about, let alone write, and I should know. I lived through both the events of the story and the process of recording them with him. I expect he'll have bad thoughts about these experiences for the rest of his life, and I certainly made my peace with being by his side for them. However, I think whatever his failures might have been, this story confirms one thing. Parker is a good man who takes great care of those he loves. He certainly always has been good to me, and my family loves him. And for reasons I'll get into shortly, I wanted to remind him of that side of himself now particularly strongly. But first, let's deal with a question a lot of you are probably wondering. Do I think he's insane? No, I don't. But if even he was, I wouldn't care. And I wouldn't let anyone lock him up. Parker is the best thing that ever happened to me. I feel freer with him than I've ever felt before. I was at my low point the night he found me down that alley, but I feel happy that the person I am now, and the longer I stay with him, the more set in stone that person feels. Plus, we really are quite alike, and while I know all couples probably say that, and you haven't got much evidence for it, I promise you that it's true. And anyways, we've been through so much together and I just want to make sure he understands what a wonderful thing it was that he came into my life. What's more, I couldn't really afford to lose him now, which brings me back to why I had him write this down at this precise moment. You see, I'm pregnant, and while I haven't told him yet, I want to make sure he remembers what a good protective man he's been to other people's children before I tell him he's going to have his own particularly since my mother's intuition tells me that our child is probably going to look more like him than me. Though, even if I'm right, I'm sure he, at least, will be perceptive enough to recognize whatever resemblance the baby has to me, too. I suppose you're wondering why I'm telling you all this. Well, I may be sentimental, but after I've spent so long relaying my husband's most painful experience to you, I sort of feel like all of you are family. And so you deserve to know who's really been posting all of this and relaying Parker's replies to your comments. I really think it's a pleasure to talk to all of you in my own voice. Oh, and that reminds me. Even though Parker's referred to me many times in this, he's never mentioned my name. 
I should probably find that insulting, but honestly, given what he had in mind, I can forgive him. But there's no reason you shouldn't know my name, and unlike Parker, I won't bother disguising it behind a pseudonym. So, hello. I'm Jocelyn. Or at least, that's my full first name, and it's also what Parker always calls me. I don't mind, but all the same, it's always felt a bit formal. But you readers have been so lovely, and he's told you so much about me, that I don't feel we need to be formal with each other. So, please call me Joe. Thanks for joining me tonight for the thrilling finale of author Jasper DeWitt's series, The Patient That Nearly Drove Me Out of Medicine. To learn more about DeWitt and access more of his work, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Featured Authors under the About Us tab. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. 
As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.